Law Podcast is back. In the first episode of this new academic year, we discussed the Sun's decision to publish details of tragic events that befell Ben Stokes' family several decades ago, and Jacob Rees-Mogg's use of parliamentary privilege to shelter himself from liability for traducing the reputation of a government consultant. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. We're back and better than before. This year, we're going to be bringing you two different types of show. There will be our regular monthly discussion of topical issues in media law that you've been uh, used to getting. This is the first of those this year. But we're going to take the news segment out of the longer podcast and put it into a separate, shorter, more regular offering, so you'll get a quick update on what's happening in the media law world a bit more frequently. That news-only show will start in the next few weeks. We're also bigger on social media this year. We'll be tweeting more, and we'd love to hear from you. In particular, we'll try to make time to answer listeners' questions during the main show. So if there's an issue you'd like to hear our thoughts on or a topic you'd like us to explore, please do tweet us at Media Law Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your regular podcast platform to get episodes automatically as soon as they're available. And please keep spreading the good word about the podcast because we want to reach as many people as possible. It's been quite a summer. And although I suspect a constitutional law podcast would be cleaning up audience share right now, there's still been plenty for us in the media law world to get our teeth into. Later, Paul and I will be discussing Jacob Rees-Mogg's decision to attack the reputation of Dr. David Nickel under the protective cloak of parliamentary privilege a few weeks ago. But first, we turn our attention to the publication in The Sun of details of a tragedy that befell the family of England cricketer Ben Stokes. The Sun published this particular material on its front page on the 17th of September and quickly drew strong criticism for doing so from Stokes himself. Joining me to discuss the matter are my usual co-host Paul Ragg of Leeds University. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. Rebecca Musevian, also of Leeds University. Hi, Rebecca. Hello there. And Peter Coe of the University of Reading. Hi, Peter. Hi, Tom. Peter, if I could start with you, because both you and Rebecca have written about this particular case recently, um, could you outline for us exactly what happened? Yeah, sure. So, um, the, as you as you said in the introduction, this this case relates to a an article which was published by the Sun um, earlier uh, this month. Um, in which the Sun, um, uh, well, the Sun's article related to um, a family tragedy that befell the Stokes family back in 1988. Essentially, um, Ben Stokes' mother um, uh, had two children with a with a, a previous boyfriend. Um, I believe the brother and the sister, uh, Ben Stokes' brother and sister, um, who were tragically murdered by Ben Stokes' mother's ex-boyfriend. Um, and as I said, this happened in New Zealand in 1988, three years before Ben Stokes was born. Um, the Sun uh, revealed this story. This was this was this story was published in the New Zealand media back in 1988, but it, it was kind of unbeknown to us this side of the world 
um, until the Sun revealed it in this in this newspaper article, which they published in print. It made the front page of their of their of their print edition of the newspaper, and it was also published online and was um, it was quite widespread. Um, and then uh, Ben Stokes the following day tweeted about it um, and basically condemning the Sun's article and the way they went about gathering the information. And Ben Stokes has not taken this um, terribly well, has he? Um, as well, he might not. Um, what was his reaction? So his reaction, as I said, he tweeted, um, and his his tweet was was, was unsurprisingly, uh, uh, well, you know, quite um, well. It was it was, an, it was an unsurprising response from him, really. So he said essentially, I'll just kind of paraphrase what he said in his tweet. It's hard to find words that adequately describe such low and despicable behaviour disguised as journalism. I cannot conceive of anything more immoral, heartless or contemptuous to the feelings and circumstances of my family. The son thinks it is acceptable to sensationalise our personal tragedy for their front page. Um, he then went on to say later in the tweet, this is the lowest form of journalism, uh, focused only on chasing sales with absolutely no regard for the devastation caused to lives as a consequence. The article also contains serious inaccuracies, which has compounded the damage caused. We need to take a serious look at how we allow our press to behave. Now, The Sun, if memory serves, relied in its retort to Stokes very heavily on the fact that this story had been published previously, as you say, in New Zealand in the late 1980s. Um, and I, I'd like at this point to bring Rebecca in because, Rebecca, you've looked at this question on in a post that you've written on the Inform blog, um, just as Pete has written on the Inform blog. And everyone listening should go read those pieces because they're both excellent. Um, but Rebecca, you've you've written about this and you've been looking into the question of you know, whether this is a serious invasion of privacy or whether it's mere reportage, whether this is simply repeating that which has already been published in a way that's perhaps less problematic. Yes, that's right. So one of the uh, justifications that the Sun gave for its publication uh, of the Stokes story was that this was already a, a sort of a public piece of information, uh, you know, that had previously been covered. Uh, and so, you know, in putting forward those sort of de defences, if you like, they're kind of relying on um, a sort of traditional, what we might call public domain uh, defence. Uh, and that's the idea that, you know, once information is is out there, uh, you know, there is nothing secret or private to, to control or, or keep secret. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, it's, it's fair game, if you like. It's perfectly acceptable to, to publish it. Uh, in relation to the sort of uh, the, the legal position, certainly uh, traditionally in sort of early confidence law, which sort of our privacy laws are drawn from, uh, that public domain type binary uh, division did sort of apply. So in cases like Spycatcher, for example, uh, you know, a case from the, the sort of late 80s, early 90s, uh, the House of Lords refused to continue a, uh, an injunction that re restricted information um, that was widely available because, you know, the injunction was essentially pointless. It didn't actually, uh, you know, do anything. Uh, but 
the position in relation to sort of mod modern privacy law has moved on since then. So that sort of public domain binary uh, doesn't quite apply uh, anymore or doesn't apply in the same way. And that actually, this reminds me very much of the ruling in the PJS yeah. case, just whatever that was now, a couple of years ago, um, where, again, the defendant argued that because there had been publication of these allegations in the United States in particular, that there was no longer any confidential material to protect, but the Supreme Court rejected that as a reason uh, not to grant an injunction on the basis that an injunction could still do some good because there was still some residual harm being done to the privacy of the claimant and the claimant's family. And that seems to me to be the same sort of issue that we're grappling with here. Yes, I, I agree. And I think the, the sort of groundwork for that shift was also done in the, the Giggs case as well. So you've, uh, you've got a situation where a claimant is seeking to uh, you know, restrain information that is sort of widely available. Uh, and, and sort of in cases like Giggs and PGS, you have the courts uh, grappling with the, the tricky issue uh, of you know whether an injunction is appropriate. And, and certainly those, uh, those cases in PGS in particular um, sort of mark a shift to a different w way of approaching sort of uh, public domain. And so the, the purpose of an injunction shifted in those cases. And the purpose, the courts say anyway, isn't uh, to, to actually keep a secret. Uh, it's whether or not the injunction will uh, sort of minimize intrusion uh, or, or be more effective in limiting intrusion than if no injunction was granted. So it's a much more modest aim, if you like. Um, and, as, well, and the effect of that is to, um, I suppose, to to accept or acknowledge that there might be cases where even if information is in the, the, the sort of public domain or out there in a broader sense, that there might still be a need to, to limit it in certain circumstances. In this case, of course, although the information was, you could say, technically out there, it was uh, published in a, a different country, you know, decades ago. And so the question is, you know, was it, you know, what does that republication kind of create an intrusion or a revival uh, of that, you know, the story when, you know, when it otherwise wouldn't have done? Hmm. Now, Pete, you've been looking into the question of, the, the relationship between standards of responsible journalism and, when one, and what went on here. Um, yeah. Can I invite you to say a little about what your article's looking into and the argument that you're, that you're making? Yeah, sure. So essentially, I've, I've argued previously in, in other articles that I've written that there are, there are two categories of free speech. You've got your, your your personal right to freedom of expression and you've got the right to media freedom. And I argue that the latter, media freedom, ought to be treated differently to the former in that the enhanced right to media freedom entitles the media, journalists, um, to privilege protection over and above non-media actors. So you and I, for instance, if we're not acting in a media capacity. And as a result, the right to media freedom carries with it duties and responsibilities. So what I looked at here really is, is, is just based on what Ben Stokes said, but we've got to bear in mind here that we haven't had a response really from the Sun. We don't know what they're saying 
Uh, we know we know that their their spokesperson said that actually, you know, um, this information was already in the public domain and they got it from uh, Jackie Dunn. Um, but that's it. We haven't really heard much more from the Sun about this. So I'm kind of just I base this article really on what Ben Stokes said in his tweet. So um, what I say essentially in my article is that. In my view, we should take a functional rather than institutional approach to how we define media and how we define who benefits from this enhanced right to media freedom. So um, just because somebody's a member of the institutional press, such as The Sun, doesn't necessarily mean that they're acting as media all the time. Applying that to this particular case, we have certain issues that arise from what Ben Stokes said and the conduct of The Sun's journalist in gathering this information. Um, so... For instance, what I kind of say in the article is that there are the duties and responsibilities on a journalist um, and whether they uh, and, and how they apply that include the extent to which that journalist is reporting on a matter of public interest, the journalist's behaviour or conduct pre-publication, and finally whether the journalist acted in good faith when they gathered that information when they published that particular story. Now, in terms of the first point, the point on reporting on a matter of public interest, what I say about this very briefly, and again, this is this is based on, on, on the article itself and what Ben Stokes has said, is that if you set aside the public domain arguments and the other arguments that have been raised um, kind of against the Sun's, the Sun's conduct, um, this seems to me to be a story that is very much one of those ones which may interest the public, but may not actually be in the public interest, particularly when you weigh up um, the, the, the story against the privacy rights of Stokes family members who are in the public eye and they've never actually courted publicity. In fact, far from it, they seem to want to shy away from um, the public eye and from controversy. And they've obviously been privately dealing with this matter for a number of years. Now, the second point I talk about is the journalists' pre-publication behaviour. So how they gathered that information. And when they're when they're doing that, they are expected to abide by certain standards of conduct um, when they're gathering, editing and imparting the information. Um, and this, this is particularly significant where the journalist discloses information that might negatively impact on an individual. In this case, it's negatively impacting on a number of individuals, not only Ben Stokes, but really his, his mother and his wider family. Um, in doing that, what the European Court of Human Rights has told us is that, you know, journalists should, uh, they should act with transparency, but they also should act on an accurate factual basis. Now, we know based on Ben Stokes's response, he believes that this story contains a number of significant inaccuracies, which he said has actually compounded the damage that's been caused to him and his family. So, you know, it raises, it raises that issue as well. Um, the, the, the last point I make, of course, is that the, uh, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, we know, has consistently held that journalists have to act in, in good faith. Um, and what this includes, when we talk about good faith, is the integrity of the journalist or the integrity of the publisher. Um, in that they mustn't distribute intentionally statements that are false or harmful or act um, with a negligent disregard for the truth. Um, and also that they um, that their motive shouldn't be based on, for example, purely financial gain. Now, again, applying Stokes's argument to these principles, 
he suggests that you know this is just a story which the Sun has published purely to chase sales. I think they he actually uses those words in his tweet. They they've done this just to chase sales. Therefore, they've done this with no other reason. There's no public interest reason here. It's to sell newspapers essentially. So so my my argument is is that based on what Ben Stokes has told us, based on taking the the article at face value, we haven't, as I said, heard a response from the Sun. It would seem to me in this case as though the Sun and the journalists themselves haven't acted in accordance with these duties and responsibilities. And in in, in that regard, they they shouldn't be afforded the same protection as they are under the right to media freedom um, had they have had they have been if they would have acted properly. Uh, in the publication of this particular story. Paul, public interest, is there any in this in this in this case at all? No. The Sun's response um to sort of point to um public domain uh sort of sounds like the prelude to um a public interest claim, but um as Rebecca and Pete have said already um it uh it's it sort of confused doctrinally it's, it's sort of doctrinally confused um and i'm sort of sat here thinking through what i think that the value of a public domain claim is or ought to be in a in a privacy claim because as rebecca said it's sort of clinging on to the idea of um of confidentiality but for me um Public domain could be something that that acts as a limitation on the uh, privacy claim, but I can't see how it really adds anything to the public. Uh, sorry, I can't see how it adds anything to the free speech claim. It just doesn't seem to say anything. Yeah, so I think even for what it's worth, I essentially agree with you all. I mean, this is... We don't know enough about the family background to understand exactly what the impact of this is on them. But one can presume that this was a, a extremely distressing incident in itself. B that the coverage of it at the end of the 1980s was very distressing and C extrapolating from that it's reemergence in the public domain um, some decades later is likely also to be extremely distressing. Um, and given that, this to me seems to fall squarely within the PJS doctrine. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I just can't see how, even if we take the public domain claim seriously, I really can't see any court believing that. You're taking a story that was published the other side of the world and attracted limited coverage at the time i think it was published somewhere in it sort of parochially and it's something that was published 40 years ago and which would only have had a limited degree of prominence at the time owing to the egregiousness of the criminality involved not due to the profile of the individuals yeah also i can't count it was 30 years ago wasn't it <laughs> However long it was, it's not the maths podcast. Yeah, I, ju I just sort of, yeah. Well, thank you all for that. We'll have to leave the discussion there. 
has been most enlightening. We'll be back after this. September, the new leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, spoke at the dispatch box and he compared uh, a doctor by the name of David Nicholl to another by the name of Andrew Wakefield. And this uh, drew vociferous criticism, not least from Nicholl himself, because Andrew Wakefield, the man to whom he was compared, is a doctor who was struck off the medical register by the GMC in 2010 for falsely and irresponsibly linking the MMR vaccine with instances of autism going uh, in the face of all of the evidence um, which showed that there was no such link. David Nicholl, as a man who was uh, one of the a number of uh, doctors who acted as a consultant for the present government's no-deal Brexit planning. And in the course of his consultation, he warned that a no-deal Brexit would be particularly problematic for the supply of certain drugs, drugs that were uh, important to uh, uh, treating people's ongoing medical conditions. Um, the political point that Rees Mogg was trying to make is that this is what he would call Project Fear. But what he ended up saying was that Nicol was as as irresponsible as Wakefield. Now, under any normal circumstances, that would be straightforwardly libelous to compare a practicing professional doctor to one who has been so irresponsible uh, and notoriously so as to be struck off and whom I believe is now out in the United States continuing his anti-vaxxing uh, in a, a more openly anti-vaxxing uh, forum. But Rees-Mogg said what he said at the dispatch box in Parliament and so he was covered by parliamentary privilege. Thus, there could be no libel claim against him. Nickel did challenge him to come out and say it again in the media if he uh, really mm. believed it, where he could be sued. Yeah, but he didn't. Uh, a while later, under considerable pressure, Rees-Mogg issued what I think I will describe, perhaps generally, as a pithy apology um, to uh, Doctor Nickel. So, Paul, we're back on parliamentary privilege again. And we seem to keep coming back to this um, yeah. because MPs, uh, is it just me or are they doing this more? They seem to be, don't they? It, well, it seems to be a, a sign of the times um, with uh, sort of speaking to the, um, uh, I don't know who they're speaking to, speak to the right wing press. What do we do about it though? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because presumably we want Parliament to continue to have MPs who feel comfortable and confident 
speaking their mind in the chamber, free from any repercussions. On the other hand, there's no getting away from the fact that this was not even party political. This is entirely about Brexit. It's about that polarization between remain and leave. And no, this is not going to turn into a Brexity podcast, but we have to acknowledge the context. And you have a single issue that is enormously divisive. And let's face it, dirty tricks have been played and will continue to be played by people on two sides of an extremely polarized debate. And whether that's the Brexit debate or another debate, in those circumstances where you have such polarization, you get dirty tricks in politics. It happens. This feels less like important parliamentary debate than it does naked partisanship. And I wonder whether our doctrine of parliamentary privilege is these days really able to cope with that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, Tom. I, re- I really think parliamentary privilege needs another look. Um, I mean, when I think back to the the Peter Hain uh, example, which I, I still maintain is is the most egregious um, of all. So Philip Green, as um, a businessman who had entered into employment contracts with a whole bunch of employees, subsequently there had been allegations of sexual harassment by Hain against some of his former employees. It turned out that a number of these allegations had been made and made public in breach or apparent breach of non-disclosure agreements. Um, Peter Hain, uh, a member of the House of Lords, used parliamentary privilege and openly used it to name Sir Philip Green as the person against whom certain claims were being brought, even though technically, legally, his name should not have been linked with those claims because of the non-disclosure agreement. Um, So that's the background to it. But in the case of Peter Hayne, you have two politically controversial matters colliding, and matters of serious public interest. You have, first, historic sexual harassment, which, of course, has been in the news over the last few years. Um, And you have the right to freedom of expression. Um, So you have both of those issues colliding. And that's not what you get in the Reese Mogg case. No, it's it's not. Look, the the problem in the Peter Hayne case was that uh, this was a constitutional moment, a constitutional moment that's been quickly forgotten about, but but one in which a politician um destroyed the um the legal process of a court determining the validity of these confidentiality agreements um in its own time uh, and in its own way and uh, peter hayne destroyed that uh, process um when he stood up and named philip green as person who had the benefit of these non-disclosure uh, agreements now have it 
what that illustrates, I think, is the problem whenever you have an absolute right to do something, it means that when you exercise that absolute right, even though your exercising of your right destroys or seriously damages somebody else's right, there's no legal recourse. There's no opportunity to discuss the um, merits um, of your behavior in a, a legal setting to discuss whether the right that you've interfered with is actually of a stronger nature than your own right. That is deeply problematic for me. Um, I understand the uh, issues. I understand why democracy might require us in certain circumstances uh, to prefer the uh, free speech rights of parliamentarians um, over other people's rights. Um, but I don't think it should operate in the total way that it does. I think it should be uh, a presumption which is rebuttable in limited circumstances. So, I mean, to paraphrase a very recent and controversial judgment, although uh, undeniably strong judgment from the Supreme Court in a different field, might we need to have a, re a justification, a reason, perhaps even a good reason, for the exercise of the privilege before that privilege should be lawful? Yes. Putting it on a par with other matters affecting Parliament, such as prorogation, and that is, of course, the case, Miller number two, that I'm referring to. Oh, exactly. Of course, the difficulty with that, as a free speech advocate will quickly point out, is that members of Parliament don't often know what it is that they are going to say, um, in response to questions and debates and questions that are asked of them in the chamber. And they may not have had time to fully formulate a justification for what they're about to say before they say it. Um, might, might this inhibit, might, might this inhibit free speech? I mean, uh, this is interesting. First episode of the, the new academic year and I'm the one advocating free speech. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm doing so purely, you know, a devil, devil's advocate basis. Um, but this, this could present practical problems. We're not suggesting, by the way, this is ever likely to be a change in the law. We're just speculating. I'll take the point, Tom, but, uh, you know, we're talking about, well, one, we're talking about limited circumstances. And two, you know, the kind of exception that I would like to see made is the exception where... There is clearly an intention to destroy or undermine uh, the legal system, which is exactly what Peter Hain did. I mean, the, the Peter Hain example was so egregious. The man <laughs> just stood up during um, the debate, which was nothing to do with um, the, the Green case, said his piece, and then sat back down again. Mm. So we might well be getting to the conclusion here that whilst what Rees-Mogg did was distasteful and undoubtedly distressing, um, the proper way to deal with it is by apology and thereby an admission of falsity. 
or which is what has happened. Yeah. Whereas Peter Hayne was actively seeking to undermine the authority of the courts, um, which of course Rees Mogg was not. Um, and thus, whilst the individual allegation we might think is not quite so clear cut, egregious, perhaps not so egregious, the effect that it had in undermining the courts made it a more significant intervention. And there are there are systems we can put in place to to safeguard uh, free speech so that um, uh, politicians feel protected. What I would have liked to have seen in the uh, Peter Hayne case was for the Speaker of the House to take a more active role in chastising uh, the member in the first place. And I think if you have speaker intervention in that way um, that should signal both to the uh, parliamentarian but also the outside world that what was done was wrong the parliamentarian then has the opportunity to make amends especially in a in a defamation type claim um, if it's in, indeed possible to make amends um, and if it's not then if it is possible to make amends that should be the end of it if it's not, then that should be a signal that um, legal proceedings can be brought against the parliamentarian and that it is something that the court should take a serious look at. Well, I'm sure no, this will not be the last we hear of egregious things said in Parliament in and around the Brexit debate. and. Um, Without involving ourselves in the merits of the Brexit debate, I'm sure we will end up with uh, media-related things to talk about coming out of it in the weeks and months ahead. Before we go, there's just time to mention, and this uh, is a particularly geeky legal procedural point um, of news that's come out over the summer, the new Part 53 of the Civil Procedure Rules which will not be of interest to people other than practitioners and aspiring practitioners in the field. Um, but the upshot of this is that the uh, Queen's Bench Division of the High Court has a new case list, the media and communications list, uh, into which media and communications cases must be issued. And just one thing that stood out for me from the new Part 53 is that it expressly mentions defamation cases, misuse of private information cases, data protection cases, and uh, claims for harassment by publication as types of claims that must be issued in the media and communications list. It does not expressly mention breach of confidence cases, though those are covered um, under Rule 53.1.4, um, which is uh, claims involving or arising from the publication or threatened publication of information via the media. Um, so presumably that's where you get your breach of confidence cases in, um, as you would have before. But I just think that that's, it stands out for me because that terminology, the nomenclature misuse of private information, um, is being embedded into our procedural rules in a way that it has not been before. 
um, even though I'm, I, I'm skeptical and always have been skeptical that Lord Nichols in the Campbell case, where he first used that phrase, intended it to become a term, a term of art. Um, but I, this, this, I just think it's interesting because it's, it's being used very much now as a term of art. Mm. Um, in a way, it's the, the uh, Vidal Hall and Google case in the high court, whatever that was now, three years ago, um, entrenched misuse of private information as a quote-unquote tort. Yeah. Those see my many objections to <laughs> calling it that, um, that we've mentioned before. Um, but here it is, yeah, in the new part 53 of the civil procedure rules. So it is definitely here to stay. Also very interesting, the sort of flip side of that, is there's absolutely nothing in there that is expressly suggestive of the possibility of a claim for any other kind of privacy violation. You've got data protection, you've got harassment, you've got misuse of private information, but it doesn't mention, say, intrusion. And I know there have been some scholars who've been suggesting that the law is moving closer to recognising intrusion. Um... As, 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 a, as a claim in its own right. But this would be another, I mean, th this procedural hurdle uh, is another one. And it, it suggests that those who are putting the procedural rules together still don't see that as either something that has happened or something that's likely to happen. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm one of those scholars in favour of um, greater intrusion uh, as, a, as a tortious action. Yes, though you well, so am I. But you see it differently. You see the two misuse of private information and intrusion as conceptually indistinct. Yes, and essentially the same thing. And you might as well, you know, you could call it anything at that point. You just call it yeah. invasion of privacy. Um, whereas I see the two as still being distinct, but think we need an intrusion tort. Yeah. Now I th yeah, I think they're symbiotic. Was uh, is is my point that I think if you've got if you've got one you've got the other. Hmm. Well, here's a list where you don't. And on that note, it's time to end. But thank you for listening. Uh, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to get the episodes automatically as soon as they are available and if you've got the opportunity to rate us uh, on your podcast provider of choice please give us a nice high rating and help spread the word about the media law podcast this year we'll be back in a few weeks time until then goodbye goodbye